So today we are uh, going to be spending some time together. Uh, we are on a three-year journey through the Bible. Today is the first part of a five-part series we're calling Upside Down uh, because it looks at some of the major teaching sections of Jesus uh, contained in the gospel accounts, and they are uh, countercultural. So this morning we are uh, beginning this uh, five parts with the the Sermon on the Mount is uh, what we usually refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so I want to start with a bit of context and uh, go to uh, Matthew chapter 4. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is basically contained in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So we're just prior to that reading in Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 23 to 25. It says, And he went through it all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought uh, him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, uh, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So this is only one of three references in the New Testament to the Decapolis. Um, Deca in Greek is uh, ten, and uh, uh, P-O-L-I-S, polis, is uh, the word for cities in Greek. Um, and so it was a league of ten cities, Greco-Roman cities, on the uh, eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. So I just want to bring up a, a map for you this morning uh, for us so that we can look at it to get a sense of what that, that uh, passage I just read entails. So you, you, uh, if you've been part of our teaching time in the past, you've seen this map a few times over the last few weeks. And if you look to the north there, you see on the um, left-hand side, you see Galilee, uh, and then below that Samaria, and below that Judea. So uh, the passage talks about uh, Galilee, and then it mentions the Decapolis, which you can also see there uh, to the right, so the upper right side of the map, and then um, the uh, uh, passage refers to Jerusalem and Judea, which would be the lower left, and then beyond the Jordan, which would be to the lower right. So basically, the whole uh, region, uh, the fame of Jesus had spread, and uh, people were coming from all over to follow, follow him. Also mentioned Syria there, that his fame spread throughout all of Syria. So... Um, so uh, let's get into the, the, uh, the passage. That's the context. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the crowds were gathering from all over, and, uh, uh, but Jesus is in Galilee. And so it's, it's quite a setting, really. Um, he spent most of his time in Galilee, and there is a traditional uh, location for the Sermon on the Mount. It's referred to sometimes as the uh, Mount of Beatitudes. And we got, I have a picture of, of that for you as well. So that's a picture uh, of, of the view. Uh, we had it there a second ago. There it is. Picture of the view from the traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount. You can see the Lake of uh, Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee there in, uh, in full view. Uh, just just beautiful. Uh, and that's the setting for today's um, uh, scripture. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, 
And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the crowds were gathering, and uh, it's a beautiful uh, setting. And then in verse uh, 2, it says, he opened his mouth and taught them. Uh, the reference to Jesus opening his mouth is curious. The sentence would read uh, just fine and be completely coherent without a reference to the mouth of Jesus. And so why would P uh, Matthew state the obvious? Is it significant? And I think it is significant. If we go all the way back to the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, over and over again there we hear the words, uh, or read the words, and God said... And it was so. Uh, you know, and God said, let the waters bring forth life, and, and it was so. And, and it's repeated over and over again. In fact, the, the whole concept of the word of God um, is, is um, reference to the fact that God speaks. And, um, and I also want to read this verse to you. This is from Matthew 4. I think this is an important verse in the context it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days of fasting and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I think if we're just reading through Matthew's account, that that verse should stand out to us, that comment should stand out to us when we get into, uh, that's chapter 4, when we get into chapter 5, and where Matthew says, and he opened his mouth. Um, this theme of the authority of Jesus is the controlling idea throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The authority of Christ as king is arguably Matthew's uh, entire uh, main theme of for his whole his whole book. Um, I would refer you to the last five verses in Matthew as a witness to that. But over and over again throughout this section, we hear these words from Jesus from his mouth. He says over and over again throughout this three chapters. He says, "You have heard this, but I say this." And so this couldn't be more significant when you think about it. When we really think about it, we're talking here about. Uh, the authority of Jesus as he opens his mouth and the words that come out of his mouth have ultimate authority for our lives, uh, your life and, and mine. Um, so we're talking about three chapters chock full of amazing lessons. Uh, it could easily be and normally it would be a great number of sermons preached on those three chapters, uh, but you'll be happy or blessed to know that we're not going to cover the detail. We're on a three-year journey through the Bible, so we have to, we have to keep uh, moving through the material quite quickly. But, the, but this material is presented as a unit. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, not Sermons on the Mount. And that is chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. So it's, uh, it's good to consider this as a, as a, as a unit. Um, we know that Jesus, uh, on different occasions, his teaching sessions took in full days. And uh, reading this and appreciating it as, as, as a unit is important uh, because though it covers a number of subjects, there is a dominant theme, and it is that theme, as I mentioned, the theme of the authority of Christ. So what I want to do is, this morning is just to peruse through this material, these three chapters, uh, uh, in a cursory manner, pointing out that which uh, ties it all together and then make some application from that uh, point. So here we go, uh, once again, reading from Matthew chapter 5, 
1 and 2. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. And what follows immediately then are a list of what are referred to as the Beatitudes. They are a series of pronouncements of blessing. You probably could recall them in your mind. I always get the order confused, but, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are... Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn, I think is the second one maybe. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so those are uh, proclamations or statements of of blessing that Jesus uh, makes. Now, what is a beatitude or what is a a blessing? It's obviously a huge biblical subject. But but here are two Old Testament references that I think are, are helpful. Again, I go back to Genesis chapter 1. Listen to what uh, it says in Genesis 1. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, and let him, them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over uh, the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The theme of blessing really starts in Genesis chapter 1 and and that blessing comes from God. Uh, The other passage uh, that I want to just quickly a few verses read from is Genesis chapter 12. With, uh, where God calls Abraham, who's the father of the, becomes the father of uh, the Jewish nation and the father of our faith. He says, uh, the Lord said to Abram, uh, who would become known as Abraham, this is uh, Genesis chapter 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who honors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So I just point those out to us today so that we can understand that this, this idea of pronouncing blessings uh, directly relates to God's ability to be able to, uh, to bless his, his authority. Uh, and there's a lot that can be said about pronouncing blessings, but um, moving along, uh, I encourage you to take note that at the end of that little section of blessings, um, We have this statement from Jesus that Jesus makes in verses 17 and 18. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is speaking authoritatively, but it must be understood that anything and everything he says is in no way in opposition to, nor intended to change, contradicted, contradict or annul uh, what God has already said. And so that's important. Everything that Jesus says will be a fulfillment of, or an expansion of, what God has already said. Because truth by nature must be consistent. It doesn't change. 
And then the next statement that Jesus makes, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So no abolishing of the law, not even any relaxing of the law. That's what Jesus said. Those are the words that come out of his mouth that day. Um, and then we have this in verse 20, the following verse. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we talked a little bit about the Pharisees last week, and we tend to make the Pharisees the villains of the New Testament. Um, and sometimes we, we fail to understand that uh, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the upstanding members of society. Uh, they were the good-living people, the successful people. If your daughter was to bring a fellow home, uh, you would want him to be the son of a Pharisee. And if we miss this, we miss a lot of the lessons that the Scriptures have for us at this point. Uh, William Coleman is an author who wrote a book entitled The Pharisee's Guide to Total Holiness, obviously written tongue-in-cheek. Um, he says this, he says, The Pharisee's rise to power reads more like a modern novel than an ancient history. It is the story of raw courage, daring heroics, and deep dedication to God. The Pharisees were the good guys, not the villains of, um, of society in Jesus' day. But they went wrong, <laughs> and it's important for us to understand where they went wrong. And uh, it wasn't one simple thing, uh, though I believe it has its roots in one thing, and that one thing would be their absence of, uh, in their thinking of the concept of grace. Uh, they believed that you get uh, what you deserve and that they, um, we talked a little bit about this last week when we were in John chapter 9. They, they believe that, that you know, people get what they deserve and they believe, they set out to convince themselves that they were getting what they deserved and to uh, re relentlessly and diligently prove to themselves that they were getting what they deserved and that everyone else uh, uh, was getting what they deserved as well. And um, um, I, I think I quoted Alfred Edersheim last week. Um, uh, I think I, I mentioned this quote last week, but he says, they provided for every possible and impossible case, entered into every detail of private, family, and public life, and with iron logic, unbending rigor, the most minute analysis pursued and dominated man Turn whether he might, laying on him a yoke which was truly unbearable. So the absence of grace, uh, no grace in their lives, um, and no grace uh, for anyone uh, else either. But Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, whatever you and I might think of the Pharisees, the people sitting, the common people sitting on the grassy slope of Galilee that day that heard Jesus say this, were probably shocked. Uh, the Pharisees were 
absolutely the most moral people that they knew. In fact, the average person, uh, those who were gathered there that day on the hill, uh, they probably felt uh, guilt and shame just being around a Pharisee or just having the Pharisees around because they were so successful, they were so motivated, they were so blessed. If you're reading along through the Old Testament up into the New Testament and somehow you're hoping that when the Messiah comes he's going to ease up a little bit and, and lower the bar a little bit, you'd be pretty disappointed by this time, I think. So what did Jesus mean? What did he mean when he said that our righteousness needed to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? That's a, that's a really big question. It's, it's too big for a full answer today, but I, I do want to say to you that if our concept of grace is somehow that God is lowering the bar, then we have a wrong concept of what grace is. And we'd have that in common with the Pharisees. It doesn't help, think about it, it doesn't help uh, anyone by making goodness less than what it is or by making evil out to be something other than what it is. And that's not what grace does. Grace does not in any way compromise the truth of God. Let me uh, read uh, a verse for you from John chapter 1. It says there, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth together. Grace doesn't violate the truth of God's word or God's Law. The law is perfect, and what it requires of us is perfect. So rather than abolishing or setting the law aside or relaxing the law, Jesus honors the law and fulfills all of its requirements. Personally, he does. He lived a perfect life. But the grace that comes by Jesus is his willingness, Christ's willingness, to allow us, you and I, to share in that righteousness his righteousness, his perfect obedience by laying down his life for us, dying in our place, taking the punishment for our sin upon himself. That's what grace does. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And I would say uh, to you this morning that the righteousness we have in Christ exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees as far as the East is from the West. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We, we want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? You want to enter the kingdom of heaven. How is it going to happen? It's not going to happen without us receiving the righteousness of Christ. his merit on our behalf. By the way, the word heaven is used 22 times throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus makes reference to heaven. Sometimes, uh, seven times in fact, he, his, the reference is to the kingdom of heaven. 
Uh, but he also makes numerous references where he says your heavenly father or your father who is in heaven. Sometimes he says things like great is your reward in heaven. And uh, if you go back to John, uh, to sorry, if you go back to Matthew chapter four again, there we have these words. He says, it says from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. One of the things about being the king in the kingdom of heaven is that Jesus has uh, ultimate authority. He's the one in charge. And so um, I want to move on in our passage, but we will be picking up on some of these these themes as we move on because I want to uh, look at some of those you have heard, but I say to you sections because those words are so indicative of the authority that Jesus has. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, verse 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. I would say that's anything but lowering the bar. Jesus is not lowering the bar. He's raising the bar. This in no way abolishes anything. It doesn't relax anything. Verses 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus goes on to talk about divorce. He talks about oaths. He talks about retaliation. And each one of those sections is worthy of considerable reflection. We're talking about the teachings of Jesus. And uh, I encourage you to do that. A little bit later on, however, verse 43 through 45, Jesus says this. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, Jesus says, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause will be uh, uh, liable to judgment. Uh, You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, whoever looks at a woman lustfully, uh, with lustful intent in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So you'll be like your father in heaven. And then the kicker is in verse 48. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is not lowering the bar. He is pushing it to the very top. Because the law of God is perfect. It's perfect because it reflects the character of God and God is perfect. And Jesus lived a perfect life as the Son of God. Now you have heard it said, and maybe you've said it yourself, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. But Jesus says right here, be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does he mean by that? 
In what sense does Jesus expect perfection from us? I think it's obvious that he doesn't expect us in the sense that he's surprised when we fail. That's for sure, because he knows us. He knows what we're made of, as they say. But that doesn't change the fact that we are made to image God, and God is perfect. So what do we say about this? What can we say about this? How are we to understand this? We could say that when we love our enemy, in that moment, we are being perfectly like God. In that way, at least. There may be other ways that we're not like him, but that, that is something that can be pointed to, and, and we can say that right there is perfect. For me to love my wife in a way that sees me engaging with her and not intimately engaged with other women in my mind is perfect. For me to never engage with other people out of anger would be perfect. For me to love someone who is out to get me, that would be perfect because there's an absoluteness to these things that we are called to by, by God. But we must recognize that ultimately the grace of God that is given us in Christ invites us to share in the righteousness of Christ. And we were talking about that just a moment ago. We are, we are told that uh, later on in the New Testament that we can be clothed with the righteousness of Christ and that his righteousness can be credited to us or imputed to us as a result of our faith in him. Jesus does talk about this. He, he talks about it, for example, in Luke chapter 18 where he talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector going up to the temple to pray. And the, and the apostles pick up and, and emphasize this point because it is so critical for us to understand. Paul talks about being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. He says to the Corinthians, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And Paul explains, of course, in Romans chapter uh, 3, how the perfect law of God causes us to recognize our sin and our shortcomings and our need for his uh, grace. We need to understand these things because we need to understand how we can have the righteousness of Christ because without the righteousness of Christ, we cannot enter the kingdom uh, uh, of heaven. But it doesn't help for you to tell yourself or for me to tell myself or for me to tell you uh, any different than the that the law is perfect and that the standard of God is perfection because that is, that's the truth. The law says, don't do it. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Furthermore, the law says, if you do, you will be judged for it. The law says all of that. And grace is consistent with the law because grace says the same thing. Grace says, don't do it. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's wrong. Don't do it. Grace says that, but grace also says, and this is the part that makes grace grace. Grace also says, if you do it, 
I will take your judgment for you. Grace says, I know your guilt and your shame and the hardness of your heart, and I'm going to pay for your sin myself by sacrificing my own self for your sin so that you can experience life instead of death. The grace of God does not negate the law of God in in any way. It fulfills the law. And the truth of the law is fulfilled in those of us who trust in Christ and take uh, and and join are joined with him and share in his righteousness submitting ourselves to his authority for how we live so I want to go back to the passage and keep moving through um, he goes on to talk about giving chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 And how it's not enough to simply give. We must give for the right reasons. So he's elevating the laws of giving. He talks about praying, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, and it's similar. He says it's not enough to simply pray. We need to pray with the right heart attitude. Again, elevating the the laws or rules or truth about uh, about prayer. He talks about finances in uh, verses 19 through 24 of chapter 6. It speaks about laying up treasures in heaven, and we're going to be talking about that in three weeks' time. And all of this um, leads into a section on worries, uh, the worries of the world, appropriately, the worries that plague us, and, and what we should do about it. And that's the last part of chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. And all of this elevates the truth of the law of God. He is the Son of God and he cannot speak anything but what is absolutely true. And then there's a section when you come into chapter 7 about judging others, which leads into um, some statements that are referred to as the golden rule. It even says so right in my Bible. It has the, the subtitle there, the golden rule. Um, but uh, that would be a scribal comment intended to be helpful. Um, what it says is, if you look in verse 12 of chapter 7, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I want to read that again. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Once again, we see clearly the consistency and the correlation here between the Old Testament law and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says that it's all about love. Love is perfect. Real love is perfect. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's perfect. Real love is perfect. It was in the Old Testament. It is today. He talks about the wide and the narrow way in chapter 7, verses 12, and through uh, 13 and 14. And You know, it begs the question, are we going to follow the way of Jesus or are we going to choose to go our own way, the way we think, the way the world thinks is the way to to go, the way to happiness, the way to to be blessed, Uh, getting what we want, taking what we want, only to realize, hopefully not too late, that the way we want is not the way of life in the kingdom of God that ends in disillusionment and death. Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to believe? Which way are you going to go? 
who is the authority over your life. There are those who would tell us many voices, including our own inner voice, says it's all about you. Life is all about consumption. But what's the fruit? What's the fruit of that? Because Jesus goes on in verses 15 and following in Matthew chapter 7 to talk about false prophets, and he says you will know them by their fruit. And I don't want to be too broad in my application, but I think that when I tell myself things that aren't true, I become a false prophet to myself, right? How do you, how do you tell? It's in the fruit. It's in the results, if you will. What are the results? And Jesus is speaking authoritatively here, and he's saying to us, you know, it's the results. If you follow my words, if you, if you believe and trust in what I say and do as I say, you're going to like the results. Uh, that section on false prophets, uh, com- the comments there in chapter 7 lead into a, 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 a section about how we sh- are to judge our own selves and know, and know whether or not we are uh, really following the teachings of Christ or not, whether we really know him or not, or, or rather whether he really knows us or not. I encourage you to read those verses if you have, and it's Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, and it prefaces the very last section, uh, which is Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and following, where Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with a story. And he prefaces the story with this comment in verse 24, and I want you to look at that. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I want for you to read that again with me, and I want to slow it down and read it thoughtfully and prayerfully because this is really important. In light of everything we've read so far in this Sermon on the Mount, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like. Like what? Well, that's when Jesus tells this story to close off his teaching time. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And then the section in Matthew closes with this commentary It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The scribes claimed authority. 
In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees put immense effort into convincing themselves and convincing everyone else that they had the authority. But there's something about authority that just cannot be taken hold of. It can only be bestowed. And it can't be fabricated. It has to be real or it just doesn't exist. But the authority of Jesus is real. And being a follower of Jesus is, in a foundational sense, about bringing yourself under the authority of Christ. Are you doing that? Are we doing that? And the authority of Christ is born out in the fruit of our lives. Because the storms will come. The storms will come either way. The question is, what will the outcome be? What will the results be if we build our lives on the words of Jesus? That's really the point of all this, isn't it? The results. Are you interested in results? Most people, I think, are. But in order to really be interested in results, we have to have a, a mindset that looks forward. What's the fallout? What's the fallout going to be when the storms come? In the end, what are the results? I saw this week uh, posted on Facebook, somebody posted, what if equals fear? Even if equals faith. Where is your faith this morning? Are you trusting in Christ for his righteousness? Are you trusting in his words to you and to I to live our lives according to his teaching, his truth, his laws, coming under the authority of Christ, submitting ourselves to the authority of Christ so that the fruit of a faithful life is born out in our lives and proves itself in the end. The storms will come. But I would admonish all of us to build our house, houses and to build our lives on the rock who is Jesus. And I encourage you to join me in prayer this morning. We're going we're gonna to bring the band back and sing. Uh, we're going to sing one more song together. And that's how we're going to end our service this morning. But right now, I just want to pray with you. Uh, will you pray with me? Lord, I, I thank you. I thank you today for each person that's joined in this video feed. And I thank you, Lord, that you... You want to do a work in each life, that you care about us. I, I thank you, Lord, that the law is ultimately about love, 
because it proves to us that you love us. And I thank you for your love for us. I thank you, Lord, that you care about what happens to us. God, I thank you so much that you care about what happens to us and that you want us to to end well, that you want us to to see the results of of, of a life lived on the basis of your truth and what is true and what is right and what is good. And we thank you for your grace, the grace that is in Jesus Christ, that you would be willing to take the judgment and the punishment for us. But Lord, you call us to live in that grace and to live out of the grace and the truth that is found in you. And I pray that even right now there would be many people, that all of us, Lord, would surrender our lives to you even now and say, Lord Jesus, have your way in my life. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for giving me your righteousness. Help me, Lord, to live my life under your direction, according to your truth. For your glory and for my good, for our good, we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.
tune my heart. 